Yale Podcast Network. From the campus of Yale University, this is To Live and Dialogue in LA. I'm Aaron Tracy. On the pod today, Michael Rausch. Michael's got an incredible story. I don't want to spoil it, but basically the first two TV shows he ever wrote on were ones he created. And like freaking Dick Wolf or David E. Kelly or Shonda Rhimes, he had two shows on the air at the same time. But unlike those other writers, they were his first two shows in his first year of TV work, which is completely bananas. Now, I managed to kidnap Michael for the day today. He's in production on a new CBS drama that he created starring Alan Cumming, but I somehow convinced him to play hooky and come up to New Haven. The guy is such a mensch. He's doing the podcast, then he's coming to talk to my seminar, then we're doing a big event tonight open to the Yelp community, where I'm going to interview him for a third time. But that one should have finger sandwiches and apple cider, so it's not like he's getting nothing out of this. And after that, I'm taking him to get New Haven pizza with some of my class. So actually, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. He should be thanking me. Um, One of Michael's favorite movies is Raging Bull. I've heard him talk about it from a writing standpoint. I saw a documentary at IFC recently called 7852. The entire documentary is about the shower scene in Psycho, which sounds insane. And it kind of is, but in a great way. I love stuff like that, that just drills down into something super specific and examines it from all angles. One of my favorite parts in the movie is when Scorsese comes on screen and explains that he choreographed the main fight scene in Raging Bull using a shot for shot breakdown of the psycho shower scene. And if you look at them next to each other, it's true. The punches coming at De Niro are exactly the same angles and pacing as the stabbing in Psycho. Highly recommend the doc, 7852, for writers and filmmakers and movie buffs interested in connections like that. Michael will be psyched when I tell him. And I need to thank Andrew Lincheski for introducing me to Michael. You know, I can sort of thank Andrew in every one of these podcasts, but in this case, there's a very specific connection. When Andrew got Royal Pains on the air, he brought on Michael to run the show with him because he had never done it before, and Michael had. So Michael is one of Andrew's mentors, and Andrew is like my mentor, so Michael is very much like my grandfather which I bet he'd really appreciate. All right, I'm not gonna tell him that, but this definitely does feel like a family affair. So here he is, one of the nicest, kindest, just good guys I know in this business. Let her roll. Hi, Michael. Hello, Aaron. (laughs) Uh, we were just saying it's unusual because uh, most of these interviews are on the phone, but this one is in person. It's kind of great. It's great. I get to stare into your eyes. <laughs> yeah, and you're staring at you me relax too. me. I don't like yes. it. It's making me <laughs> uncomfortable. Uh, so many, if not most TV writers, uh, work on staffs of other people's shows and they work their way up the ladder. You seem to have had a very unusual career in that the only TV shows you've ever written for are ones that you've either created or been a showrunner on? That is correct. Is that right? That is correct. And it's a blessing and a curse. Definitely more of a blessing in that I've had the very good fortune of uh, beginning as a show creator. And so um, not beginning as a staff writer and working my way up. I think the the downside to it is that, you know, I had to learn very quickly the dynamics of a room. Yeah. I had to learn um, what each level was, what it was meant to be. I had a terrific mentor on my first show, a guy named John Worth. What show is that? Uh, Love Monkey. And uh, I was do actually, it, it's kind of crazy, but I had my first two shows were picked up on the same day 
within an hour of each other. It's insane. And I was in uh, auditions uh, because we had an idea that the ABC family one called Beautiful People was going to go. So they wanted to start casting, but it wasn't official. And I came out of those auditions and it was a snowy New York kind of Christmassy night and uh, turned on my cell phone and it was just 25 messages. And uh, they were all from agents that I knew, agents I didn't know, agents I had, agents I'd never heard of. Uh, and then a bunch of uh, studios and networks, and I was trying to figure out what was going on. And the first one was uh, from the head of ABC Family, a guy named Paul Lee, saying, we're ordering your show, but we're not just ordering a pilot, we're ordering a straight to series. And so then I felt like, well, I guess that's what all the craziness is about. And then I got to the one, um, I think it was from David Staff, who's the, uh, it was CBS Paramount Studio at the time, now it's CBS Studios, or Nina Tassler, who was the head of um, of the network at the time, saying, we're ordering your pilot love monkey to series. Um, CBS though, and it still is the case with a lot of networks, since I had never done anything in TV, insisted I have a showrunner for the pilot. Uh, and I had come from the kind of paranoia, as I think most writers do, is you hear someone's going to come on and take the show away from you. Right. So CBS had a list of, of showrunners that they would approve, and I went through it and made a lot of calls and read scripts and met uh, with this guy, John Worth. Uh, I flew out to LA at this great old Irish bar called Tom Bergen's on Fairfax. Right, um, right. And we sat down and had probably three or four beers. And I just loved him and trusted him. And he was a really uh, important person in that he was able to walk me through very quickly the process. Wait, so were both shows they were picked up on the same day, were they going to start at the same um, time? They were, they filmed uh, the second season of, um, what, what happened with um, Love Monk is that we shot the pilot uh, and in March or April, but it did not get picked up in uh, for fall and they didn't order it um, in the upfronts for a mid-season either that only came later so I was in Toronto shooting the first season of Beautiful People when I got the call that they wanted to order uh, Love Monkey so the actual shooting of Love Monkey overlapped with the second season of Beautiful People and did they let you run Beautiful People or did you have to bring a showrunner onto that one they let me run that Yes. How the hell did you know what you were doing? You'd never been in a writer's room and now you're running a writer's room. I had not been in a writer's room. I did go to film school and that was very helpful in that I knew how sets were run. I knew what the various departments were. I had an idea about that. I spoke to people in TV who I knew. A lot of it was learning on the fly. A lot of it was pretending I knew exactly what people were talking about then having to figure it out very quickly. And a lot of it was being honest and just asking questions and saying, right. you know, help me with this, help me understand that. Um, we had terrific writers on that, uh, on Beautiful People, um, the non-writing EP is a guy named Paul Stupin, um, who's been around forever, is really smart and was, was a good kind of teammate for me. But I think knowing now, I don't think I quite understood the importance of putting a room together. And so it was a very different experience. When people tell you uh, that Hollywood is um, a hard place, do you believe them? Hard in what sense? To um, have a career, to get stuff made. You had your two first fucking shows picked up at the, on the same day. I find that language very <laughs> offensive. Um, uh, it is Hollywood is really, for people listening, you're going to make people move to Hollywood and say, oh, I'll get four <laughs> shows picked up on one day. Michael Rash can get two, I'll get four. Hollywood is a, you know, it's a strange, it's a very strange place. I'll go with strange. I think that... Um, there are, I've had such a great experience with executives who are smart and caring and don't follow the cliche of their sharks and going to kill you. But at the same time, you know, it's very unforgiving. If they don't like your show, the, the show I did for CBS Love Monkey, um, you know, was a very different type of show for that network right. in that they were doing strict procedurals. This was a romantic comedy 
starring Com- Tom Cavanaugh and Judy Greer about an A&R rep uh, at a music label. Poor Jason Priestley. Just and Jason Priestley out. and Lorenz, Lorenz Tate okay. and Ivana right. Milicevic. That's enough. Um, Teddy Geiger. Uh-huh. I'll, I'll keep going. <laughs> um, but, you know, the network was so happy with the show. And what CBS did at the time, I don't know if they still do, is they give you two folders of reviews. One of the positive reviews and one of the negative. So you don't have to read the negative if you don't want to. And the positive reviews were like, you know, a foot thick and the negative were a quarter of an inch thick. And of wow. course, I only read the negative reviews. So I can feel <laughs> shitty about myself. Um, so everything was looking great. And then it premiered to soft numbers. And then it went down the second week. And then it went down the third week. And they canceled it. How many episodes? So did we you get? aired three. And then they shifted the, we shot eight, the other five to VH1, which Viacom also owned. Um, but you could just walk across the street to your other show, which was in I could, but it was still completely heartbreaking. Yeah, I have and, no sympathy for you. You know, I mean, it is a beautiful feeling to have a show picked up to air. Um, an incredible feeling, a terrifying, anxiety-ridden feeling, but great. But once you're up and the sets are built and you know the characters and you know the actors and the family's been formed and you get a phone call just saying, as of now, it's all done, it's dead, it's, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, it's, it's it's really hard for me to summon sympathy for you. Um, you will. You've had four pilots in a row go to series. So you've not made a pilot that was thrown in. You know, I made a pilot this year that yes. is now in the trash can. You, or is in my closet, you know, on a DVD. <laughs> you've, you've never done that. Everything you've made has gone to air. That's true. I'm not getting incredible. Um, right. Um, but, yeah, you know, I noticed you didn't really answer the question about, you know. Is it a hard place? I think do you, ev- other people don't. Everyone <laughs> has. And, and when I do teach, you know, because everyone says, what's the way in? Uh-huh. And the only answer is everyone has their own way in. Everyone right. has their own path. I do believe that, you know, hard work is, is everything and a work ethic. Um, and also, you have to make sure that you're willing to stick it out because it can happen very quickly. And then you can have a long dip and you have to decide, do I want to stick it out? Do I believe in this? Right. Or it can take a, a long, you know, if someone like a James Gondolfini, some of these actors who were discovered in their 40s right. who were just chugging away and chugging away and finally their moment comes. Right. Um, I mean, Ben Shankman, who we both know and love, is an example of someone who's constantly working because he's so incredibly talented. But I think as he gets older, he, the parts are kind of going to grow into him because he has that character actor mm-hmm. thing. And so even though it's not a household name now, I think he's getting closer and closer to getting the part that makes him one. Right. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's been easy. I waited tables. I bartended. You know, after film school, there's a long period of just... Is that right? How long between film school and your first movie getting made? Which, um, was, which was what? Which was... Well, the, it was in the weeds. Um, and what happened is in film school at Columbia University, there was something called the script bank where we all were allowed to put in... Um, little synopsis, little log lines of our scripts. And um, and they would send this book of everyone's log lines out to every possible studio agency management company. Huh. At the time, I was taking a writing class with an incredible teacher and writer named David Shaber who wrote The Warriors. Oh. Um, and it was a thriller class. So we all had to write thrillers. So I wrote um, a really cheesy thriller, but it had a cool log line. And I got a call saying, we're interested in reading the script. So I sent the script and nothing happened. Then like six weeks later, I got a call saying, we want to buy the script. So I found a lawyer and I got so excited oh God. And, uh, and then it disappeared. And then about two months later, I got another call saying, uh, it's Friday. We want to buy the script. The deal has to close by Monday. Um, and so it went back to this mania of how we're going to do it. And we did it and it sold for like, Forty thousand dollars, which you know <laughs> at the time, yeah. at the time was everything, and so right. exciting. 
and uh, I sent it to, and the film got made, by the way, uh, in uh, Canada. It was a new joint venture between an American company and a Canadian company. And I don't think they liked each other very much. So the Canadian company would give me notes and pay me for it, for the rewrite. And then the American company would give me opposing notes and pay me for the rewrite. If I like the third draft, they caught on and fired me. Uh, <laughs> I, I did not get invited to set ever, but the movie got made. What was it called? Uh, it was called, um, the, my title was The Best Revenge. Um, the title that they used was Fatal Affair. Uh, it is a terrifically a cheesy but fun uh, thriller starring C. Thomas Howell. Oh my uh, God! Yeah, The Outsiders, and wow. and he's great in it, and some actually some other really strong actors too. Uh-huh. Um, but I sent that script to an agent who I kind of knew at William Morris, and she emailed me back. Um, I hate the script, but I like the writing. So why don't you write something personal? And I did, and I sent that to her romantic comedy, and she and signed me off it. And we tried to get it set up, and I went to LA like three times to. Um, meet and talk about getting famous people, mostly the whole cast of friends attached. Right. You know, that was the hot thing. And by the third trip, realized it was never going to happen. You knew C. Thomas Howell. Uh, right? Very closely. And yeah. I used his name. I dropped it a lot. <laughs> um, and then uh, I decided to write something that I could make. So I wrote a feature that all took place in one night in one location and raised like about $700,000 and shot it. And uh, You shot it for under a million dollars. Oh, we shot it for yes. under eight. Yeah. Wow. And uh, the the illustrious Miramax films oh um, bought it. And um, then we sold it to Fox as a pilot. And oh. I had no interest in it. Didn't know anything about TV. The producers in the film said, why don't we sell it to TV? Who starred in the movie? Um, the movie had a great cast. Molly Ringwald, Bridget Moynihan, Ellen Pompeo, uh, Godfrey Chima, J.P. Piddock, Eric Bogosian, oh, uh, cool. Josh Leonard, who had just come out of Blair Witch Project, Michael Silver. Huh? Um, yeah, really good, fun cast. Um, oh my God, I'm forgetting his name. Who's he'll, he'll come? Kirk Acevedo, who was a chef, who's so talented. Mm-hmm. Um, so we went to Fox, and the head of drama at the time was a guy named David Nevins, who's now the head of Showtime, and pitched it as a half hour. In the middle of it, he said to me, "Michael, can you make it an hour?" I had no idea what that meant, but I said, "Yeah, sounds totally. like double the money." So they yeah, exactly <laughs> right. They bought it in the room and uh, wrote and directed the pilot of that, and that kind of. Was Molly Ringwald and Ellen Pompeo going to start? Uh, they were not. No, uh, Ellen had. Uh, this was a little before she uh, got Grays, but uh, no, we we recast most of the parts um, for the series. Wow! But at this point, I'm just you know for people keeping track, you've worked with C. Thomas Howell, you've worked with Molly Ringwald. You're really Eric Bogosian. This is an '80s powerhouse. A total team. '80s powerhouse team. Peter Riegert was oh in the God. film. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, I I like collect all of people that <laughs> I loved and try to work with them. Right. Um, I mean, Cloris Leachman, who we may talk about later, yeah. who um, a giant Mel Brooks fan. Um, oh, nice. Not to mention she was also in Butch Cassidy. But uh, she is such a you know legend. So I got the opportunity to work with her and Ed Asner and yes, right. All of the people that I grew up watching and loving. That's awesome. That's the yeah. most fun part. Henry I would Winkler. Imagine. Right. Yes. Yeah. Right. So fun. Um, all right. So let's talk about Real Pains for a second. Um, you know, I saw that the whole show is streaming on Netflix now. Um, and I'm always kind of curious about this. You know, you spend countless hours writing and crafting and producing and editing eight seasons of a show. Do you care that people are now potentially binging it over the course of a few days or a few weeks? I, I think if they're watching it, I'm happy. Yeah. I think, you know, you obviously want people to watch your shows when you make them. But to have longevity and to feel like the shows and the characters and the writing stands up is 
uh, an incredible feeling and an incredible accomplishment if it's actually happening. It's one of the things that Netflix and Hulu and Amazon, you know, I think what they're adding to uh, the TV world is the opportunity for people to catch up with the old shows. Right. You know, we show our kids The Office, um, show them Taxi, show them great shows from the past that aren't on the air anymore. And it's the opportunity not just to watch things that are new, but to really learn about great shows in the past. Totally. There's just something, I don't know, uh, maybe I'm crazy, but it feels like um, when we're binging these shows, all of a sudden the individual episode feels disposable. You know, it doesn't feel like um, the individual episode is a thing anymore. Like it was for us growing up, right. you know, uh, it's just like on to the next. Each one is just like a mini, mini chapter, but you don't feel that way. I, I haven't come across anyone that does feel that way. I, I think just... I think it's probably the rationalization of that is the way it is now. Yeah. So yeah. instead of having it destroy us and also, right. you know, some of these shows like Royal Pains and like the show I'm making right now for CBS, uh, while they are character stories that that cross from episode to episode, they're really standalone A story. Uh, so they're meant to live uh, so that, you know, one of the reasons why is you can sell it to foreign and, right. and you know, you don't have to worry about them following the character stories. But but I think that makes me feel a little bit better, which is, you know, they're going to follow this A story and it'll be complete and if they have time to go to the next one. And I... You know, I'll watch on Netflix some shows and watch two or three episodes in a row. And in a way, it invests me more in the show because I'm spending, instead of 42 minutes with the show, I'm spending, you know, 126 minutes with the, is that the right math. Right. Yes. 126 minutes for the show. And I feel a little bit more a part of the fabric of it. Right. Someone smarter than me, though, is going to write an essay about the death of the standalone episode, though, and how that's destroying our is culture. Is there a particular show that you feel like is most damaged by? I used to watch The West Wing, you know, when it was on, the week right. it was on, I talk about it with my friends afterwards. You really dissect each individual episode. And now, you know, I have students who just are watching it all over the course of three weeks and they don't even remember the characters' names just because it's all such a blur. The season right. one is indistinguishable from season four to them. No, that's interesting. I didn't think about the idea of the aftermath, having that week to think about it, right. to, to study in your mind, to talk about it, to find out what other people liked. Each one has a beginning, middle, and end. Right. I mean, you know, and you're right, because we yeah. don't really talk about specific episodes right. anymore unless there's something really special in it. Right. But Which it's we're going to get to with Royal Pains. Okay. Yeah, with your, with your clip. Um, but also, it makes me, you know, I read an article with, um, you know, where Genji Cohen said, she doesn't mind people binging her shows because the greatest compliment you can give to a novelist is that you stayed up all night reading their novel. So the novelist might have spent seven years writing the book and you stayed up all night reading and right. that's it. But that's a that's a great compliment. It's, it's certainly is. And, and you know, if you have ever binged, there's that moment, you know, at the end where there's like the next episode starts in 15 seconds and you have that life decision of <laughs> I can so easily turn something else on or do I right. like this enough to just commit to the next one? And when you make that that you know, acceptance of like, yeah, let's do it. It is a very high compliment. You give people too much credit. I think it's more like my leg hurts. I don't feel like <laughs> pressing stop. Do I want to get the chips? Yeah, exactly. Um, we had Donald Margulies on the podcast. Uh, Name you just met. Yeah. <laughs> and you acted in one of his plays. I did. And acting in one of his plays is, could be the overstatement of the century. <laughs> You're I, in one of his I plays. I said the words of one of his plays <laughs> in front of six other directing students. <laughs> yes. Um, but uh, he mentioned that whenever he starts writing a new play, he rereads Our Town. Uh, when you are starting to write, I'm always really curious about this. Do you, to, just to get into the groove, from going from eating Cheetos to writing dialogue, do you read a script? Do you, what do you do? I, I tend to have... Um, two books that I'm reading all the time. One is a bedside book and one is a desk book. And the bedside book is what I'll read. It's usually an, a biography, an autobiography, uh, a nonfiction book. Um, I'm finishing this incredible biography on Hitler. 
uh, right now, which is fun bedtime reading. Yeah, seriously, um, but it really is, creepy. it's pretty, um, it's gruesome, but fascinating and also relevant given to what's going on in the world right now. Yeah. But, um, but I also like to have creative writing. I like to have uh, a tone that, that I get something out of uh, while I'm writing. So um, what's your desk book? Richard right Russo uh-huh. is an author that I love to read because of his his humor and his character. And, you know, it's just for me so easy to lose myself in his world. And so I'm able to step away from my work, but at the same time be stimulated by the idea of having character push plot, having character um, kind of, you know, bring you in right. and, and make you feel like you're part of the world. But then does the thing that you start writing sound like Empire Falls? It, I wish it did. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> it does not. Um, no, it doesn't. But I think it. It. I think in a way, it's like a, a lubricant to get away from the you know whatever's going on uh, non creatively in my world to just suck me into a creative mindset, right? And exactly. unlock something to just let me focus on my writing. Right. I feel the exact same way. Um, the har- the hard thing is with with episodic TV is sometimes you don't have that luxury, and sometimes you're on set or even on the train up here today, you know, we just uh-huh. got notes on a script that starts shooting tomorrow. So I've got a, the scenes that start tomorrow, I've got to address right. today. Um, and so then it's like, okay, how do you just, you know, on the train or in a taxi or whatever, figure out a way to get back in, right. in you know, the, the sense of those, of those scenes. Do you have a trick? Uh, I don't. Just, I think, anxiety and pressure. <laughs> those are the two tricks, yes. That's right. Um, all right. Speaking of anxiety and pressure, we're going to play a scene from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Great. A very anxious scene. Uh, want me to set it up or would you like to do that? You set it up. So Butch and Sundance, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, played by Paul Newman and Robert Redford, are outlaw bank robbers in the Wild West. They return home to the gang in this scene that Butch runs after weeks away to find that there has been a mutiny while they've been gone. So Logan, uh, who is about 10 feet taller than Paul Newman, has taken over the gang since Paul Newman left. He demands now to fight Butch for the leadership. Uh, So let's play the clip. And this is, I should mention, this is the clip that Michael chose when I asked him to pick any scene from any movie or TV show that he wanted to talk about in terms of craft. I only sent Aaron 46 choices of (laughs) scenes I wanted to show. But yes, this is the one we chose. Okay, so we just uh, forget about Logan taking over, okay, Flat Note? You always said that any one of us could challenge a Butch. Well, that's because I figured no one would do it. Figured wrong, Butch. You guys can't want Logan. Well, at least he's with us, Butch. You've been spending a lot of time gone. Well, that's because everything's different now. Guns or knives, Butch? It's harder now. You gotta plan more. You gotta prepare more. Guns or knives? Neither. Pick. I don't want to shoot with you, Harvey. Anything you say, Butch. profit in this. Bet on Logan. I would, but who'd bet on you? Sundance? When we're done, if he's dead, you're welcome to stay. Listen, I don't mean to be a sore loser, but uh, when it's done, if I'm dead, kill him. Love to. No, not yet. Not until me and Harvey get the rules straightened out. Rules? In a knife fight? 
No rules. What? Well, if there ain't gonna be any rules, let's get the fight started. Someone count one, two, three, go. One, two, three, go. I was really rooting for you, Butch. <laughs> well, thank you, Flatnose. That's what sustained me in my time of trouble. So just to be clear for anyone who hasn't seen the movie, <laughs> that loud groan was Paul Newman walking over to Logan and kicking him in the balls. The line in William Goldman's script is, as he finishes speaking, Butch delivers the most aesthetically exquisite kick in the balls in the history of modern American cinema. It's a great scene. It is a great scene. Why'd you pick that scene? I think for so many reasons, um, in no particular order, I'm a giant William Goldman fan. Yeah, um, you know, the, reading the script of of uh, Butch Cassidy and Sons Kid is just an incredible experience before you even see what George Roy Hill does visually with it. It's funny, it's moving. Um, it is one of those scenes that it's beautiful to look at, but it also, it, with such efficiency, tells you about each one of these characters. Um, Flat Nose, Logan, you know, have very little to do, you, you get a sense of who they are. Mm -hmm. And of course, Butch and Sundance, Butch being uh, charming and funny, and clever and right. you know using his mind to, to outsmart everyone and just talking and talking and talking and Sundance saying I think he's got nine words that he says in the entire scene before one two three go you know he's just the quiet one who's sitting back and his weapon is his gun and so it just so beautifully uh, establishes the dynamics of that gang why Butch is the leader um, and why Sundance is his security blanket in a way um, and then uh, you know, one of the things I love about that movie is it is so funny. And this is an example of a scene that is a fight scene that has, you know, is primarily driven by comedy. And it's comedy coming from character and then the surprise of him kicking him in the balls. Right. Um, and so you're wondering, how is this guy possibly going to beat him? You know, this guy who's twice his size. There's, there's no way. And yet when it happens, it all makes sense. It feels real. And you go along with it. And uh, and also, you know, one of the things I love most about this film is that it's really a love story between these two men. And I think that, you know, a, an action Western, it seems to transcend a lot of genres. There's even a musical interlude with raindrops keep falling on my head, right. which comes out of nowhere. Yeah. And yet it's beautiful and you go with it. And it's not just the song, um, but it's also, you know, Catherine Ross and Paul Newman and the love they feel for each other that, you know, is not going to be manifested because of, of Redford and the way he treats, you know, it's just a fascinating example of how you can follow rules and bend rules mm -hmm. in film and TV. And as long as it all feels uh, organic and grounded to the world that's existed, then you can get away with it. Totally. You know, I love the the little interlude when Newman walks over to Redford during this scene and, you know, says, if I'm dead, kill him. I mean, you just, you want to be part of their group. Absolutely. That camaraderie, like it's so attractive. You want to be with those cool guys. Yes. Um, and it makes the ending that much more yeah. painful without giving it away yeah. and also beautifully shot and executed the way it happens. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I'd even say for those who watch this movie, the very, very beginning, and you know, it's been a while since I watched it, but I think it begins with a title card that says most of what you're going to see is true, right. um, which just again, tonally sets you up for this is going to be serious, but it's also going to be a little bit fun. Right. Um, and then it goes into uh, actual footage. I think from uh, way back when that then 
becomes dissolves into the footage from the film. It right. just sets you up beautifully with the music too. Totally. Um, and you know, just I know what you mean about reading William Goldman scripts. I mean, that's what sort of got me into into uh, dramatic writing. Also, you know, this is 1969, so this is well before Shane Black and Quentin Tarantino were doing you right. know, were writing to the audience in their scripts. So just like the line the most aesthetically exquisite kick in the balls in the history of modern American cinema. Right. I mean, Goldman Who had the balls to do that? Saying. Absolutely. And get yeah. away with it. Right. And I remember he does that in uh, The Princess Bride. He says, this is the something like, this is the greatest knife fight that's ever been yes. recorded in cinema. Yeah. And and you got Marathon Man. I mean, Ugh, the, the I way William Goldman jumps genres uh-huh. and in each, I mean, Princess Bride is such an incredible movie and it's a movie you can show your kids. And Marathon Man is such a chilling movie and it's not a movie you can show your kids. Right. And Butch Cassidy is such a funny, engaging movie, and it's a movie you can show your kids at a certain age. You know, he just seems to totally. uh, cross all these genres and do each one so beautifully. Right. What's your second favorite William Goldman script? Um, I would probably say Marathon Man. Really? Yeah, I'm a giant Marathon Man fan. Marathon Man's a great movie. Yeah, I'm a big it's fan a of Marathon Man. It's a great book, too. It I is. mean, the book itself is really strong. Yeah. Um, but Hoffman and Olivier and Roy Scheider and William right. Devane... It's just one of those things that's so creepy and it's about World War II without being about World War right. II. And the greatest torture scene of all time, the Absolutely. most creative, that dentist scene. Yeah. Um, and then also just the way it, he builds suspense and keeps things from you as a masterclass. You know, I think it's, you know, Babe's brother whispers to him something at the end of act one, right before dying. And you're just desperate yes. to find out what he said. You, I don't think you ever find out, right? No, no, no. It's such a great dramatic tool. Yeah. And, and uh, again, character, you know, everything... His writing is so, and Princess Bride, in a very, obviously yeah. very different tone, is so motivated by character. Right. And nothing is imposed on it. They right. drive the action, who they are. Totally. My favorite scene, I think, maybe of Marathon Man is um, Columbia. They're at Columbia, right? And the professor asks a question. Weaver. Yeah. Is that right? That's, yeah. And no one knows what the, no one raises their hand to say the answer, but you see Dustin Hoffman write down the answer. Right. And we just get, he's smarter than everybody here, but he's, I don't know, he's either shy or he has his reasons for not speaking up. And it just, it, you're right. It tells you everything you need to know about his character. Yeah. And the professor knows it. The professor knows right. he knows the answer. Right. And he's got that great line at the end of that scene where he says something like, enjoy your college years. It's the last time no one expects anything from you. Right. Um, and it really, again, just sets up, you know, the world he's about to enter. Right. Um, and I don't know if we just mentioned all the president's men, but if we didn't, all oh, the president's yeah. men. Yes. Um, a glaring omission. Right. Incredible movie. Speaking of which, uh, what responsibility, if any, do you think the TV writers have right now to address the awfulness of what's happening in the world? I think it really depends on the show uh, and and what the show is on. You know, wh- one of the great things about uh, how much television there is and all these different uh, networks and streaming is that you there are places now where you can get away within the context of the narrative to get into the stuff. But I also think there are places where you can't. And for instance, you know, the show I'm doing right now for CBS is not a place to get into uh, current events, unfortunately. The way we're doing it is that it's the first hour-long network show with a gay male lead or a gay lead. So well, that's that, is, yeah. that is something we're not hanging a lantern on it, you know, we're not making the show about that. Well, that's how you make but, it interesting, right? You don't, you ignore it. Absolutely. Yes. And, and to have it feel real. Um, but you know, that's something that's been going on for a long time. And so, you know, we're trying to address the world that we live in that way. Uh, but there are definitely times that you want to write a scene, uh, or find a character that's incredibly, uh, you know, relevant to things that are happening right now. 
Um, and it doesn't feel like this show is the place to do that. Right. And it's also really tricky. I mean, you're working for a network and a studio that are owned by giant conglomerates and, you know, obviously have to appeal to people that might have different partisan leanings than you do. Right. So, yeah, it's a really tricky balance. Um, but speaking of your new show, it, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, but it, it feels like Love Monkey and Beautiful People and Royal Pains um, uh, tonally have, you know, a bright, upbeat, aspirational kind of feel good vibe to them. A, if your new show, which is, you know, called Instinct for CBS, this is a detective show based on a James Patterson novel. If it's like the other CBS detective shows, it's going to be a little bit darker. Uh, that is a great point. And this one actually would be consistent with the tone of the other shows. Um, of your other of shows? Of my or? other shows, yeah. It's part of what um, I pitched for uh, the show to be and part of what CBS has embraced. You know, the question is, um, will the audience embrace it? And it could be the end of the show for us. You know, that may be a tone that can't exist on the network. We'll find out whenever we premiere. Alan Cumming is the star. He is so quirky and incredibly talented and charming and fun to watch that to not embrace that, to not use that, uh, to help define the tone of the show would have felt like a giant missed opportunity. And also, it would have felt like we were not utilizing, uh, you know, all of his tools. Mm. And Boyana Novakovic, who plays Lizzie, his partner, again, is a really strong actress, but also very funny. And we have Whoopi Goldberg, we have Naveen Andrews. We have, you know, a lot of people, Dan Ings, who have lightness in them. And, you know, when we're talking about Butch Cassidy and the tone of that film, it to me is is a lightness and comedy is something I feel is essential in everything. And, you know, I, I think when you were asking about dealing with what's going on in the world right now, the way I'm trying to do it, and it was with Royal Pains too, is I think that because there's so much darkness in the world right now, and there's so many anti-hero shows, which are great, I'm not criticizing them, but I do think that there's space for shows that make you feel good and shows that you're able to kind of escape from the real world and for 40 minutes or 30 minutes or an hour, watch and turn off and just feel like I feel a little bit better about how horrible things may be in the world. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's kind of what we're going for. It doesn't mean there aren't going to be stakes. There isn't going to be people dying because it's, they're homicide detectives, all of that. And that'll all be grounded and feel real and a sense of urgency. But in terms of the people and the relationships and the characters, uh, I'm an optimist. I'm a humanist by, by nature. And uh, I like to try to infuse that into the tone of the shows. And that's just incredibly awesome that you get to bring your voice and your tone to a network and to a genre where usually they try to just slot in the same cookie cutter vibe over and over and over again. Well, again, I would just say that we'll see how long it lasts. <laughs> Love Monkey was three episodes. So Yeah, but again, um, I'll say it's you not realizing how hard this freaking business is for other people. <laughs> no, it is really hard, but but it's also, you know, every every network has their own audience. And so there are some shows, this show could work great on NBC uh -huh. or ABC or name a lighter thing and main, you know, this may not, which is, I think what happened with Love Muck. I think it was just the wrong network. I think that show oh, really? could have worked elsewhere, but you know, CBS was very kind of meat and potatoes procedurals at the time. They've gotten more character. They've gotten more lighter with shows like Elementary and Bones and, or not Bones, but Elementary and CIS, Scorpion, you know, some of these shows that have right. a lighter tone. Right. Um, so the, the, you know, it's, it's been a little bit, the, the trail has been blazed a little bit, but we'll see how they react to it. And of right. course, we have to make a good show too, which which is a big part of it. Right. Um, I got to get you out of here in a minute so uh, we can go talk to my class. But um, first, I want to ask you one more question before we play a clip, um, which is, um, 
you know, during the, the incredibly long process of, um, you know, being in a writer's room, generating ideas to writing the first draft, getting studio notes, network notes, to shooting it, to editing, what part of that process do you feel most creatively, you know, satisfied, um, happiest? When are you, mo what, what do you do this, this job for? What part of the process? Uh, it's going to sound really cheesy, but I actually love all the parts of the process. Really? I mean, I don't like outlining. Outlining is tooth pulling. But I do believe in long, detailed outlines because I think once you have that, you have a solid foundation to write a script. Um, I love to be in a room by myself writing, but I love being in a writer's room with a bunch of other writers figuring out an episode. And I love being on set with actors as they raise the material, bringing their talents to it. Yeah. Um, editing can be a little bit frustrating only because in episodic TV, you don't have enough time yeah. to really spend in the editing room as you did on your pilot, as right. you know, on feature films where you do. so. You have to have really strong editors and and you know be able to give efficient and strong notes as quickly as possible. Chess. Um, and then I think the part I enjoy the least is when the episodes air because it's so out of our control and there's so much anxiety about who's going to watch it, whether the live rating is going to be the L3s, the L7s, and you know it's, it determines the fate of the family you've built, the show you're making, right. and uh, and it's got sort of do with what you can do at that point. Right. Yeah. Completely. Um, so I want to play a clip from uh, a sh from Royal Pains. Um, so this is from the second to last episode of the series. Um, it's a musical episode. It is a musical episode. Yeah, <laughs> and not because we felt like we needed to, but uh, I was I was raised by my father watching uh, Paramount and RKO musicals, and uh, you know by the age of eight, basically knew every Fred Astaire musical, really? and loved musicals and still do. I love La La Land. I love Moulin Rouge. Um, and so in the first season, I started lobbying for a musical and they kind of laughed. In the I, first season? Yes. I tried again in season two. Anyway, by the beginning of season eight, they basically were so tired of me lobbying. They just said, fine. Um, so we did it. But one of the reasons also is that when you're working in New York, so many of the actors you use are Broadway actors. So we had in, you know, in the 104 episodes that we did of the show, Broadway star after, Bro you know, Sutton Foster and Laura Benanti and Cheyenne Jackson. Uh, Patty Murin, Alexander Sosha, Ben Shankman, you know, people who, who do it, sing and dance for a living, uh, Christine Ebersole. So it also felt like, you know, how can we not take advantage of this? Um, so they said yes. And uh, we hired Tom Kitt, who had won a Pulitzer Prize for Next to Normal. Um, and he wrote all the music and I collaborated with him on the lyrics. And the cast was incredibly game because a lot of them were performers and the ones who weren't, like Mark, who hadn't done a Mark Forrest, you know, didn't a Broadway show, was so excited for the opportunity to sing and dance. Henry Winkler too, terrified but excited. Wow. Um, and Cloris Leachman. So it was a way for us to bring back a lot of the past, one of the songs, in fact, the song that you guys are gonna see or hear called The Good News Is, is uh, a look back uh, at many of the patients that Hank treated throughout the series. So all the people who stand up to talk about what, what was wrong with him medically and the, the point of the song is to make Hank feel better of himself about as a person and a doctor. They're all basically people standing up and testifying to how we help them. Uh, it's a little bit, it was inspired for me by Sit Down, You Rock in the Boat and Guys and Dolls. Hmm. Um, but we're able to use, you know, and I think for the people who are incredibly loyal, we're all pains watchers, they would recognize Fisherman Jim. You know, each one of these people who were guest stars in previous episodes to stand up and talk about the case that they had as right. a way to rally around uh, Hank. It was so cool. Um, so we're going to uh, play that clip going out. Um, thank you so much for doing this. this thank really you so fun. much for having yeah. me. This Excellent. was delightful. <laughs> and it wasn't so awkward looking at each other in the eye. Not only semi-awkward. I kind of yes. enjoyed it. Your yeah. eye patch didn't help, but 
It was good. Um, and I hope you guys like uh, The Good News Is. Here you go. Let's play the clip. There is always a silver lining. Silver lining? You're a single cute male physician. That's not helping. You made encephalopathy sound inviting with a warm, cheery disposition. Still not helping. There are ills that are quite ill-fated. And at my age, I've had a few. But though my memory is quite deflated, there's no way I'll forget you. The good news is you're going to be okay. The good news is disease happens every day and you're the one they're going to call and say, make me better. A perfect score, who gives the crap anyway? Microvascular changes sure ain't child's play. Heal thyself or whatever it is they say, doc. Primate belts from animal high. Yeah, I thought I had an STD. Right. We tested positive for syphilis. I packed my bags, that was it for me. But then you said no, it's Hansen's disease. It was. Also known as leprosy. Yeah. You made us well and saved our marriage. Today, Today is, is our fifth Somatic skeletal neuromuscular dysfunction. Yeah, I know. Who are you? Where is Divya? I had a CSF leak in cannabinoid hyperemesis. That's right. I still don't know what the hell that means. I'll explain later. You diagnosed me with hydrocephalus. You blamed it on my family genes. But the good news is we're going to be okay. The good news is we're living our life today, so don't get Can't eat I trust us, Hank, for we never lead you astray. You can't save everyone, even if you try. Cause last I checked, it's still quite certain. 